1: The first time I had seen porn, I was seven years old. Later on in the story, I'm 10 years old, I was molested. Vulnerability is risky, no matter what way you cut it. Aaron, I think you're more addicted to passivity than you are to porn.
2: Dear young married couple, is pornography a part of your story? You may not realize, but porn is actually not the problem.
0: That's exactly what Aaron Zint found out when he was recovering from pornography over the past decade. So he is a pastor, author, and podcaster. He comes to us today with his story, but also some very practical tools for you to take and help you with changing your story. His book is called Numb to Known, The Surprising Path Away from Porn. And we're so thankful that he's joining us today.
2: It's going to be an awesome interview. Um, And if you or someone else is dealing with pornography, this is a time to really get educated and to start um, working on this problem Mm -hmm. or working on the solution for this problem.
0: Exactly. Also, um, before we get to the interview, we wanted to let you know about our marriage retreat coming up in June on the West Coast. And it's going to be so much fun. You've probably heard us talking about it, Um, but it's called Adventure and Intimacy Retreat. We'll put the link in the show notes where you can go register and find out more about it. And we hope you'll come join us, you and your spouse, for a weekend getaway full of becoming more known and that results in being able to feel more loved. So we look forward to meeting you there.
2: Yes. Come be with us.
0: All right. On to the interview. Welcome, Aaron Zint, to the podcast. We're so glad you're with us today.
2: Yeah,
1: thanks for having me. felt super honored to be invited to your podcast because I've listened to a number of episodes with some really quality people on here, and I was like, how how did they get... I mean, you guys are quality (laughs) all on your own, but I thought, how did you get... Dr. Gary Chapman on
2: one of your episodes. I was
1: like that's <laughs> blowing my mind. <laughs>
2: that well, that your cool.
1: quality too. So at
0: you're thanks. right yeah, up there yeah, with yeah. them.
2: <laughs> yeah, Aww. we love you guys, you and your wife. Yeah. Their their podcast. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, Marriage they're, Lab.
0: Marriage that's Lab. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're
2: awesome. I actually worked with Jenna way back in the day. This is Aaron's uh,
0: wife by the way.
2: Yeah. At yep. at, uh, at, at a middle, middle school. school. Yeah, middle school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So crazy. <laughs> so yeah, awesome. Small world. But mm-hmm. yeah, she is she is an awesome person. Learned to love her. And then yeah. met you when we were living in Reading. And Right. Uh, yeah. Super just people that are awesome people. And you have come out with a book mm-hmm. called Numb to Known. Mm-hmm. The surprising path away from porn. And we're like, okay, we have to have Aaron on.
0: Yes. We're looking forward to hearing your story, but um, not just your story. I think people who are listening are going to be able to get really key components from your story that they can apply Mm -hmm. to their own journey in porn recovery. So I'm really looking forward to jumping into it with you.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, I can... um I can start with just saying I. Uh, let's see. I the first time I had seen porn, I was seven years old, which is mm-hmm. um, for the average. About you know the st- statistics on this are always changing because yeah. um, you'll you, depending on who they're interviewing or uh, how readily ac- accessible the internet was at the time of the study or what yep. it changes. But the, it seems like the average age of first exposure is. Decreasing, as in it's get people are getting younger when they see it. That's right. For me at seven years old, it was that's very early. Um, But even prior to that, I think what kind of set me up, um, in a sense, to have that have deeper hooks in me than it could have on somebody else is I had uh, my first sexual experiences um, around the age of four with an older kid. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of, you know, at the time, it was more confusing and just like you know, it's just exploration as kids. But because this kid was older than me, and as now that I know about what kind of what sexual abuse is like, and yep, um, the, all that experience, I I've understood that this kid who introduced me to a lot of this stuff probably experienced their own sexual abuse Mm -hmm. um it would make sense for all the things that they introduced me to so um i was because of that exposure at that early age um sexuality became like i was i I had a hyper sexualized childhood that was all in secret too Mm -hmm. um and so uh some of the some anytime that did surface like I got in trouble for um, you know, acting out with a, another kid or something like that sexually. Mm. If if I did, it was you know there's a lot of shame around that. Like hey, sure. you should know better. Like this is wrong. And mm. and so inter- I I think I internalized you know and I, I don't fault my parents for this because they they didn't know how to yeah. how to respond and that was probably pretty scary for them. But, can you um, also
0: I, describe the home you grew up in just so that yeah. people who are listening can understand like the context of the parental strategies?
1: Right. Yeah. So it was, we were a conservative Christian family, um, mm-hmm. um, pretty stable in most regards. And um, my parents were you know, super kind, loved the Lord, and... Um, and yeah, so that that was the context for my yep. childhood, and so I wasn't in a crazy environment. I wasn't right. in an environment that was conducive to um, experiencing this kind of stuff. But you know, two kids playing in a room together—you yeah. you don't think about mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. And then when I was um, seven, and I had found porn, it was um, it was a person that had been uh, living with my grandparents at the time, and I was told to take a nap in his room, and so they, it was. He wasn't there. Uh, and so we because my grandma kind of ran a daycare, if you will, for a bunch for me and my siblings, a bunch of other kids. So this exposure was never, you know, meant to happen. I wasn't introduced by somebody. It was just kind of this um I naivety on the part of my grandparents as to yeah. what might be in there. And um, and then so I see that at seven. Um, but then I start exploring and f- uh finding in like homeless camps at the city park or different places like that i find it more often um and then begin to actively look for it when i can and this started a whole series um uh, a whole childhood experiences of sexuality with other kids sexuality with um You know, eventually the internet, I think I was probably like 13 when we got our first computer with the internet. And then it was definitely off to the races with that. Um, Yeah. And then um, even beyond like internet porn, it was, uh, it began more like I, because of the hypersexuality, I was attaching most uh, emotions to my sexuality, attach most like even, even and especially joy. Like I get excited and be like, Oh, let's figure out a way to include sexuality in this. And as a kid, it's just kind of around how my f- brain was formed. Can and you so, explain, um, Aaron, the the
0: hypersexuality yeah, that's piece? Just good to do. Yeah, yeah. To, just
2: yeah. to slow that down because people are like, "Okay, what what does that mean?" You know, is that, right. Like, tell us like your experience of like how you viewed sex babe, when you were a little kid. That, yeah, that would make that hypersexuality. Well, I I I'd say that it was hypersexualized in that I
1: had. I had a strong pull towards um, like seeing girls naked, um, a strong pull towards being like kind of exhibitionism, being naked in places that I, you know, quote unquote, shouldn't. Um voyeuristic activities and mm-hmm. so there there was this such a strong pull at such a young age mm. like most i think anybody who's an adult or a teenager who's been addicted to porn um or they're just hormones are going crazy from puberty or different things like that might experience some form of hypersexuality where it's just on the mind very yeah. often um and so I'd say I call it a hypersexualized childhood because a, a counselor had once used that term, and it actually, if resonated in me, like, oh mm-hmm. wow, no, that's so true. I, yeah, there's
2: a word there was, for this. Yeah,
1: yeah, it actually it made sense because there was so much extra focus than what. Uh, is normal for that developmental age. Like there's normal yeah. developmental exploration. Um, you know, even like masturbation for young kids is like, oh, my body part feels good when it rubs up against this. That's, right. you know, it's not sin. It's just like an experience. They're going, oh, that feels good. Um, what you can do with that later on in life can become like sin filled decisions. But
0: yes. at
1: that age, it's not. And so, right. but it also doesn't drive the majority of your decisions it doesn't you know yeah. it might feel good while you're laying in bed at night but it's not going to be this how can I figure out how to experience this you know 10 20 times a day so that's And you what feel I like
0: think- at a young age you did have that extra uh it, it went beyond just oh this feels good it was like oh how can this drive more it was of a my focus. day
1: yeah it was a focus and yes yeah. and you know if From the outside looking in, because I don't have that perspective, I don't know how what it would have looked like from anybody else. I just because of the memories that I have, um, under say 10 years old, the number of memories I have around sexual activity that's where I would go. Like that, I have kids now, I have a nine year old, Mm -hmm. six year old, and a three year old, and there's you know some level of their own kind of exploration of their sexuality in terms of just like, oh, that body part feels good to touch. Um, That you know we parent along the way, but I I don't see in them um, the same uh, experiences that I had at all Mm -hmm. as a kid, and so that's why I would call it hypersexualized. That
0: makes a lot of sense. And you think that potentially came from the four-year-old experience and Mm -hmm. then the seven-year-old exposure to pornography.
1: I think it came from, yeah, the those things built upon each other. Like, I don't uh-huh. think that initial exposure um, as a four-year-old, you know, it didn't like ruin me for life, um, but it did make me curious in a way that it did happen later again with that same kid. Yeah. Um, and so the kind of repeat, and honestly, like as I've been working through my own sexual history and working through some of the, the little T trauma uh, events that happened, sexual abuse and things like that. I've s- different kind of memories started to surface that I mm-hmm. didn't remember. And so I'm like, oh, how this actually happened more often than I thought. Mm-hmm. And so is that kind of repeated exposure that um, kind of put it in my mind? Oh, this is a thing. Mm-hmm. This is, That's what it was. And I think for a normal developmental, it's like, oh, this is just a part of my everyday experience of like the various um, sensations of life. Whereas for me, it became like the primary sensation um, to seek and to experience things like that. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. That's so
2: good. So Mm -hmm. you said something um, that was interesting to me and I would like to hear what your take is on this. But you said as you've like worked through your sexual history, Right. Um, this has been a process for you. This didn't mm-hmm. just come out. Very in much. A, one day. How Very much, yeah. What does that look like for you over time?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, something that, because I help lead us um, like a men's sexual wholeness group. And um, one of the things we talk about a lot is exploring your sexual history and understanding it, kind of mm-hmm. building what we'd call a coherent narrative of your life. Um, so that you can understand why you behave the way you do now because there's a lot of components from childhood. And so um, one of the things that we do talk about it though, is we're not necessarily going on a, on a beach with a metal detector and going, where is there you know where are there sharp objects that I can you know dig up? But um, as we are walking along the beach, when a sharp object surfaces, we are willing to actually stop, uncover it, realize sometimes there's a number of shards. And if we can yeah. start to like, clean that up is a oversimplified word for what healing happens Mm -hmm. but um if we can clean that up then my family's not going to step on those same objects that are there in my life um i'm not going to continue to step on those objects again and so my willingness um to go hey this actually had an effect on me because i didn't think it did like i i used to think back on that and have no emotion about it i'm i was later on in the story i'm 10 years old i was molested Um, And so I also, from that experience, um, I would go into different inner healing sessions or counseling sessions, and I'd think about it and be like, I don't think it affected me that much because I feel nothing right now, Mm -hmm. which is not an, uh, you know, your your present experience of it, of something emotionally doesn't necessarily tell you the kind of effect it had on you. Yeah. but actually, stepping into some of those memories, um, realizing there's a lot of shame attached to those memories because of the yeah. complicity that was a part of my uh, the molestation or the experiences with other kids or what have you. Like there was so much that I internalized as, "Oh, this is this is a part of the bad person that I am," right. and so um, even realizing I actually should, should probably tell somebody. About what happened, like you know, a a safe friend, a pastor who met a counselor. I should probably like actually share some of the details that I experienced because I really, really don't want to. And why don't I want to? Because it happened to me. It's not like I did something wrong in those given moments. But you Um, held that
0: narrative probably for many years. Yeah,
1: and I I wouldn't have been able to articulate that back then. But Mm -hmm. as as I realized the amount of shame that was attached to a lot of these memories Mm. and the difficulty with which I would share something like that, I go, oh yeah, shame tells me, my shame tells me that this is something wrong with me, which is why it's difficult to share and why it's easier to hide and kind of suppress everything. So good.
2: For those who are listening, that is such a key indicator. Mm -hmm. Like that should tell you what Aaron just shared, like the degree to which you feel repulsion from sharing yep. is mm-hmm. also an indicator of how much shame you're probably holding yeah. to a mm-hmm. safe individual. We're not talking about yeah. like telling everybody, but we're not blasting this on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. By the way, everybody, yeah. this is a, to a trusted mentor individual, but this is, that's a big thing to be yeah. aware of. How much shame do you, are you holding around this? Right. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that you felt numb uh, when you first looked <laughs> back? like, Was it shame? Trying to distance yourself, like trying to not feel. So, Mm -hmm. and then, how did that Mm -hmm. that not feeling affect you in your marriage later on? Yeah, well, um, there's a popular
1: quote that um, is attributed to Carl Jung, but I don't know that it necessarily was him. But uh, it says, "Until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our lives, and we'll call it fate." Um, And so, within the Christian context. until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our lives and we'll call it discernment, we'll call it God, we'll call it um, my spiritual state. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for the way that, yes, I believe that the reason most of it kind of went into this um, numb place was because um, as soon as shame indicates something, you know, that shame's number one job besides telling you you suck is to then hide you from the world so that nobody else can find out that you suck. And so... The amount of isolation that happens because of shame, um, it's really sneaky as well in that um, it's it's so subtle. Like all these memories I didn't think were needed to share because I didn't realize there was shame attached to it. I just never did. Um, and until it came time to go, I think that might be a good idea and I felt the like resistance there I go okay, I think my body and my brain were like, hey, we know how to keep you safe and it's it's by not letting people into your inner world because if they are you're gonna be rejected yeah. um And so that that's why I think that happens but um, this affected me the fact that this I didn't really have this stuff sorted out or figured out or, or understood um, affected my marriage because I showed up to my marriage with um, what this guy, Andrew Bowman would call a pornographic style of relating. Um, hmm. And he said like, you know, we have attachment styles of relating with people, avoidant, insecure, secure. Yep. And um, the the way that he said, like when you grow up on porn, when you are like taught what sexuality is from porn, um, it kind of informs the way that you relate to people. And so part of that would be, you um, I thought sex was for me. Um, I thought the point of it was in order was to have a great orgasm. Like that was the number one goal in marriage was to have a great orgasm. And as a Christian, a sin-free great orgasm. You know, like I had plenty <laughs> of the, the sin-filled Qualifiers. ones. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. And so, besides the the selfishness around that, the objectivity with which I viewed women and even my wife. Um, not viewing them as entire whole people. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole list of other things that he would describe as our pornographic style of relating to the world um, that showed up in my marriage in the way, the expectations I had of my wife, not just in sexuality, but in meeting my needs without me sharing my needs because um, Patrick, Dr. Patrick Carnes, who's kind of like the godfather of sex addiction. uh, Mm -hmm. He says the, one of the four core beliefs of a sex addict is, um, if I have to rely on somebody else to get my needs met, they won't get met. Mm-hmm. And so part of sexuality um, growing up with this kind of sexuality is um, I have to rely on myself in order to be taken care of. Um, because if I try to rely on somebody, they're going to disappoint me. And that hurts way more than just not giving them a chance. And so with Jenna, that showed up a lot and really like, leads into the the first um, or this part two of the book, uh, which is I didn't realize I was lonely. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's you have three of those for- in
0: your book, like I didn't realize I was this, this, or this. And mm-hmm. so that first one is I didn't realize I was lonely. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. So the first section, part one of the book is just understanding that, hey, we don't have a behavior management problem as much as we have like a lot of things going on under the surface that need addressing. Um, porn is is one of our solutions to the problems of isolation, passivity, and pain. And so part two of the book is talking about my journey in loneliness and isolation. And so how it showed up in my marriage is I didn't know how to share pain with my wife. I didn't know how much pain I was stepping into marriage with Mm -hmm. around sexuality, around um, unmet needs, around loneliness. And so within that context, I I shut down my heart to my wife um, in the first three years of our marriage because there were so many instances of pain that, you know, my, you guys know my wife. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she is, if I had any kind of like, uh, if I had a lot more of this healing up front, I would have had such a greater experience because she's so good at caring and having compassion yeah. and she is. listening. Yeah. And so, but my, the filters through which I saw life um, part of my attachment styles and different things like that. I, any kind of, any time that I would be vulnerable in some small measure, I would interpret her reaction or the way that she'd respond as rejection. Um, mm-hmm. And I, it was just more confirmation, you know, this kind of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, like, oh, see, it's not safe to share. It's yep. best to just like shove it down. And I'm in Enneagram nine. So um, being unaware of what my own experience is, is part of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, type. And so I shoved, I shoved a lot of emotions. I shoved a lot of pain I even shoved excitement and joy down because, yeah. um, you know, their joy and pain dug from the same well. You can't yeah. just like shut one off and hope mm-hmm. the others, um, show up. And so, um, yeah. I found out, I realized it was like, we were three years into marriage. And I realized at one point I haven't cried in front of my wife in, in three years. I don't That seems wrong. Like, because I could cry in front of her before marriage. Um, I had a number of, like, I I felt like an emotional person in general. But the key difference then, this was part of the beginning, really the beginning process of my healing was um, realizing that, okay, even when I want to cry in front of her so that we can connect on something I'm feeling, I feel my emotions physically retreat within my body. Like I will, I will have just cried with a friend or a family member. And then Jenna came into the situation and I'm like, oh, this is my chance to like connect. Cause I deeply, deeply wanted connection, just didn't know how to do it. And then she'd show up and I'd feel all my emotions. Like just, I, I, you know, our emotions are so much bodily experience that I feel like this literal bodily experience of um everything kind of retreat from my neck, it would just kind of go down my torso until I couldn't feel it anymore. Wow. And I, I couldn't even force it to come up. You were and was physically
0: like, numbing your yes. experience. Yeah.
1: Wow. And based on and you know, I I've come to realize like, oh my my brain was working really hard to protect me yep. in those moments. Yep. And like I'm thankful for uh, it's attempts. I'm just realizing how unhelpful that was for yeah. what I really wanted. Yeah. That's so powerful, Aaron. It, it, there was a point I joined this men's group where they said, "Hey, sit in your pain, feel your pain, do this. You know, like don't run from it." I'm like, I don't have any pain. My life's been good. You know, like my marriage is good because even with my not being able to cry in front of my wife, there's a lot of good stuff in our marriage. Sure. So it was one night I was um, sitting with these guys in our small group, and it. Things got. I felt really safe with these guys, and everyone started sharing in a more deep and vulnerable way. And they said, "Hey, what's what's going on with you, Aaron?" And first, I don't know how this came up or why it came up, but definitely like felt like the Lord was on it. Um, I what came out was, "I'm afraid to be close to my wife." And the moment I said those words, a, like a wave of tears came, and it felt mm-hmm. like the dam kind of burst in a way wow. that it hadn't ever before, and I just like wept for probably like 10 minutes. And as I wept, I, all these memories of pain in our first three years of marriage, um, that from the outside looking in might seem benign. Um, but as the Dr. Glenn and Phyllis Hill of the connection codes. They would say, Hey, if you can hand somebody a one pound weight of emotion over and over and over, they can take it. But when you hand them 500 pounds, like that's going to crush somebody, you know? And what I realized is like, I had built up um, 500 pounds, so to speak, yeah. of emotion that had never been processed. Um, and all these small experiences of pain that just built up so much weight and so much pressure over time came spilling out. Yeah. And I um, I was then, because I realized this, I I definitely processed this uh, quite a bit with these guys in the next few weeks before I dropped a 500 pound weight on my wife. <laughs> but I, I did um, eventually uh you know, struggle to hand her the weight. Uh I did I told her, hey, I realized some stuff in group. And she knew the reason I was going was because of my porn use. And um oh, so yeah, that's a part of it. Porn was also has continued to play a part all through childhood up to my adult yeah. life. So um I told her, hey, I I need I realized some stuff. Can I it's gonna be a lot, but I feel like I really need to share it with you. And she's like, I no, I'd love to hear. So one night we were laying in bed, and I was like, Would now be a good time? She's like, Yeah. So I was already trying to prep her. And I like, hey, I was, I should have shared this stuff with you along the way. I didn't. That was my fault. But I feel like I just need to get it out. And this stuff isn't your fault, but this is just what I experienced. And so she's like, Yeah, yeah, go ahead and share. So I start to share because one of the main pain points was around our wedding night and all these unmet expectations i had you know because Mm. of my pornographic style of relating um and the next day after our wedding there was a lot of pain that she had just no idea that was happening in me because i was Mm. so good at suppressing it um i started to share with her okay so on our wedding night this and i could feel the emotions begin retreating again and i was like dang it and then i was like okay you know what i realized part of my emotional retreat was i was using a lot of like logic cognition rational like words uh, like um good i know insight. you didn't mean to and here's uh you know this is this is probably what you were thinking at the
2: time just a lot of thinking yeah. for what was analyzing very emotional- the situation instead yes. of
0: being in the situation in some yes.
2: ways that was distancing yourself like your language was helping you distance yourself from what was actually mm-hmm. going in on like what was happening in you and we'll get right back to the interview but what we want to do is make you aware that we have a resource around this whole subject of talking with your kids about sexuality and it it's called having the talks
0: And in having the talks, we address things like homosexuality, transgenderism, but even just the basics of sexuality, like anatomy and identity. Um, We start the whole deck off with identity. And it's a resource for parents and children to play together. You can play it like a game. And it helps children as young as age three all the way up to teenhood. There's um, really two decks in one because we have questions for younger children and on the other side of the card, it's a question, same question, but for older children.
2: Yes, and this deck is designed to really bring these subjects up um, organically so that you can um, really have this discussion with them and and open a safe place for you to be an askable parent. So you could go to havingthetalks.com and get your deck. And it will actually reroute you to Amazon and you can get it tomorrow. Next day shipping. Yeah. If you ordered it today.
0: All right. Link in the show notes. Back to the interview. Yeah. Right. What I
1: realized, find out later is the different parts of our brain, you know, the left side, more linguistic and linear, rational um, thinking, logical, and the right side, emotional side. Like I had relied so heavily on shutting down the right emotional side and would rely a lot on the left side to express what was happening. But that means I wouldn't experience the what I was feeling. And so I realized it was happening. And I told her, I'm it, I'm going to stop trying to qualify everything that I'm saying. I'm going to stop using any all these kinds of words. I'm just going to tell you exactly what I feel, okay? She's like, yeah, please. And the next words that came out of my mouth was, the day after our wedding was the worst effing day of my life. And I used the F word at the time. And with that kind of visceral language of... This is what I, I, as I said it, I could feel it. And I was there the day after our wedding. And that's when the dam broke in front of her. And then I put my head on her chest and I cried and she cried with me um, for probably like 10, 15 minutes. And I got to share like this experience happened and this, and it hurts so bad to feel this and, the mm. the waves that just kept rolling out of sadness and loneliness that I didn't know was pent up over time and yeah. and her just like being what we'd call an attuned listener in that moment to mm. she didn't try to fix me she didn't try to uh, interpret it she didn't try to you know nothing she just cried with me and yeah. it was after that experience that was the first time in my life I felt known by mm. somebody truly known because I was not only able to share with language, my experience, but I was able to share, I was able to be in the moment of extreme pain and let her experience that with me and just be with me in it. And And it was a lot of the stuff I didn't want to share. And so she was able to be with me in it. Uh, and it honestly, it changed a lot about our relationship that we didn't even know needed some help. Um, but that's also what kicked off kind of the journey to uncovering the isolation and passivity mm. and pain that mm. um, was driving my porn use. Wow. Wow.
0: That's incredible. And that's you said that was the first time you felt truly known mm-hmm. that numbness uh went away and you were yeah. you were feeling known. That's the title of your book. Right. Did you continue this pattern of relating where you were raw and vulnerable and we're able to feel known again and again was and again. It wasn't a struggle
2: having it. It was yourself. a struggle.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, like it was definitely, it was an eye opener to what was possible. Um, I still was faced with a very real um, fear that if I was vulnerable, I wouldn't be met with acceptance. Um, and this is, again, this is like on a visceral level, like you, uh, you need disconfirming evidence for some of the things that you believe that are unhelpful, um, and I got disconfirming evidence that night that if I share myself, my what's really going on inside of me, I'll be rejected. Like she, she could, she told me through her actions, like, no, you're not going to be rejected. Yeah. However, I had years and years of of self confirming prophecies about doing that, and so mm-hmm. I had a lot to unlearn. Um, and it actually required a ton of courage each time that I had something emotional because I was like, what if this is the time though? you know and a lot of those emotional experiences that I shared with her in that very cathartic moment was moments where I'd shared something and I felt shut down and whether she did a good job or not was honestly irrelevant because of how I what I perceived and then how I then behaved was more yeah. suppression, more isolation. So right. it was a process it definitely, I, it was one of those things that, and this is where the passivity part um, comes in. Is I realize I would realize that I was feeling something. So this is part of you know learn, stepping out of isolation is building an emotional vocabulary, building um, an emotional awareness, taking regular inventory so that I actually one know that what I'm feeling, but two can share that because you can't share something that you don't have words for. And so mm-hmm. um, as I began to build that emotional vocabulary and build that awareness. I realized more opportunities to share that with her and the more opportunities there was, you know, probably one out of five, I would actually share it with her because I still mm-hmm. felt that very real fear. Um, but those times that I did share were really good. Um, and then I I would get more and more confidence to do that. And I, not just with my wife, but with other people. Mm-hmm. And so the more often I did that, the more it became kind of uh, eventually, you know, that was, that was probably about, um. 10 years ago now, um, eventually uh, over the course of the next 10 years became second nature. So that when I feel some sort of pain um, or even realize, oh, I'm, I stepped on a shard of glass, which we'd call triggers, You know, this, mm-hmm. I, I got triggered. And I'm like, oh, this probably has more to do with um, the way that I perceive the world and my past experience than my wife right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the more familiar I got with that, I, it was second nature to go oh, who am I going to tell about this? How am I going to get this outside of myself? Um, nice. Because I I know what isolation feels like. It feels awful. <laughs> and I also now I know what feeling known feels like, and it mm-hmm. feels incredible, but it still requires courage because vulnerability yeah. is risky, no matter what way you cut it. Um, right. it's, it involves risk because you're going to hand somebody something that they could reject you with, but that's what makes it so life-giving when they don't. Um, and so yep. I just got more and more practiced at it um still not perfect there's still moments where i realized that i suppressed but
2: yeah, yeah. that's so good um, it could be it's it's like you figured out that keeping that sh- that that story or that thing inside of you turns to shame eventually mm-hmm. if you don't get it outside yeah. of you yeah mm-hmm.
0: and even though vulnerability yeah. is risky you recognized that most of the time it was worth it
2: yeah so- yeah so, so what happened to your porn problem, Aaron? Did it just, w- when did it go, go away? <laughs> air, air quotes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's a very um, apropos thing to do for go away when it comes to porn problem. But um, I, I began to see like, even after that experience with my wife, of feeling known um, it didn't, it didn't change right away. Like I was, I still felt very drawn to it. And I'm like, at the time I thought there was always one root issue. Like that was my experience of counseling was like, Oh, you discover one root issue, you solve that. And mm. then you're good to go. Done. And I was mm. like, crap. I thought
2: that was it. So, um, <laughs> I really I, messed no, up because I, I found two.
1: <laughs> I, I know.
2: I not to, you know, then you find out that it's like a whole root system and you're like, yes. Oh my gosh, there's mm. a lot here. So, That's um, a good way to put it.
1: What, honestly, it was really as I began to deal with passivity that I found the most traction um, okay. uh, at that time. Like it was little bits of better for sure. There was always an increase, like the amount of porn use decrease and decrease in and the, the time in between would be more spread out. Okay. Um, as I began to build this emotional vocabulary, share it, get known, not build up all that pressure. But the, I was talking to my counselor at one point, this maybe like, Year five. Like it I definitely saw no, not year five in the group. It was like a year and a half after that experience with my wife that I began to see more traction. Um, as I was talking with my counselor and I'm describing all these ways that uh that I'm not showing up in my marriage or at work, or at least I'm just what I think I'm describing is everyone else's problems um but i'm he's really seeing the through line like oh that's weird everywhere you go aaron there you are uh (laughs) and you have these problems in every one of those situations and so one of the things he said is aaron i think you're more addicted to passivity than you are to porn and in that moment i was like oh what is like it feels true but i don't know what that means and in reality i i realized that in my work life in my marriage in my friendships i was always I had a lot of avoidance, um, avoidance of responsibility, avoidance of discomfort. Um, mm. Part of the nine, so the Enneagram mm-hmm. for me was this uh, extreme fear of conflict um, because yeah. any kind of conflict means there's going to be relational disruption. And in reality, how that trans- like began to form my life is I don't know that I can be okay with somebody who's not okay with me. I don't even need to be in relationship with them, but if they're not okay with me, I'm not okay. And so I learned this, you know, growing up and kind of through the lens of my personality and stuff, is how I began to interpret life. And um, so my counselor gave me homework. My counselor began to give me homework of, he said, okay, I want you to go. I was in HR at the time, it's a very tricky uh, job to be in when you don't want to disappoint people. Um, so he goes, hey, I want you to go to your HR manager and tell her, I want to be a part of every difficult conversation that you have, every written warning, every firing. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> that's, that's where he fired his therapist, right? There. Yeah. And <laughs> I realized he was a terrible therapist. And then I moved on to somebody else and I didn't change. <laughs> um, no, I... You That's know, good I, homework. I like, that is
2: really homework. good homework.
1: It's brutal. It's freaking brutal. But I I wanted change bad yeah. enough. I knew you know that like if you want something different than you've always had, you need to do something different than you've always done. So I went to my HR manager, said that, and I began sitting in on these meetings that were the the most crazy, uncomfortable situations like you can possibly imagine. Well, actually, most people. Probably would think they were fairly benign, but they were horrific to me. It was like watching a car accident happen in <laughs> slow oh, motion.
2: Oh, That you and, knew it
1: was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I come. knew what was coming down the pipe. And so I, I had, like, I couldn't breathe in most mm. of these meetings. Like, I would short gasps of air. Um, I'd realize this because after the meeting was over, I'd be like, oh, my gosh. Okay. Mm. And so the more I did that it was kind of like exposure therapy in a way. Yep. Um, yeah. But a lot of this. The courage it took and intentionality to step into an area that I thought I felt powerless in. I felt powerless to other people. Yeah, I felt powerless to other people's opinion. And doing this over and over g- gradually like taught my nervous system to go, "Hey, you're not actually in danger here." Yep. And the the more that happened, like on a bodily uh, level, the more my brain was like, "Oh." I'm not short of breath anymore. Like I think I'm more okay with this until it came a day where I actually had to fire somebody myself and I was by myself. Usually we have a witness there with us, but it just worked out this way and I was not looking forward to it, but I also wasn't terrified and I was like, wow, this is pretty big. So I, go through the paperwork he argues a bit and i just kind of stick to my guns because i also learned the you know the tactics of doing this well Mm -hmm. he leaves visibly upset and something dawned on me in that moment i was like he didn't he doesn't have any power over me like i'm okay i am Mm -hmm. actually okay right now and there's a person out in the world who when he sees me he will associate me with bad news and i i just was like i'm okay this is incredible. And honestly, what that did on like such a deep level for me was start to reveal the amount of power that I actually had that I'd been giving away to so many people. And so passivity for me showed up a lot in a lot of avoidance of conflict, passivity for other people, especially when it comes to, say, eights on the Enneagram who are way more... Um, okay with conflict and may even enjoy it. I got a buddy who that's him and his. the way passivity shows up for him is he's terrified to look weak. And so he has a really difficult time taking responsibility for things that are his mm. uh, and saying, sorry. Ah. And for me, that's totally easy. I can say sorry all day. Sure. Um, however, so passivity
0: the, shows up differently for each person for is what you're saying. For each
2: person. That's yeah. Very good. Yeah.
1: So that, nice. that really began a change of, because really the the core issue around passivity is i have given up my power so often to external for- forces uh, other people um that honestly is, porn is such a powerful feeling cuz you control the environment it, there's no possibility of rejection that's going to happen i have so much i feel so powerful and i one night i had acted out and i went to my small group and acted out i mean like looked at porn and went to my small group and i'm like confessing and talking about it and the guy was like And one of the guys in my group who's newer, he's like, you have a wife though. Like, why didn't you just, you know, like go to her for sex if you wanted it, if you were like horny or whatever. And so I realized in that moment, I was like, oh, actually I felt really powerless today. And when I have sex with my wife, it is not, it doesn't fill me with the feelings of power. Like that's a place where I go to lay it down, you know, Mm. and to like be with her and Mm. to, to not be this dominant, you know, feeling like I'm in charge here. Originally, porn was always that for me, and so yeah. then I, I was like, oh wow, I I wanted porn because it was this feeling of power that I cr- that I craved in that moment, um, and the result of a lot of uh, passivity from in that given day, things I avoided that I'm like constantly felt powerless too, and so that was where as I began to move after the things that scared me, um, do uncomfortable things, get really comfortable with discomfort, like yes. that was part of it. Is I just got to. Um, Discomfort is a fact of life, and the more I avoid it, the more powerless I feel. So, the more I can, when I recognize, "Oh, this is uncomfortable," uh, and this is probably a good thing for me to lean into right now, the more powerful I felt. You know, it took a lot of, like, I had to muster a lot of courage a lot of times, but yeah. I mean, it's
0: counterintuitive with someone who has that pornographic way of relating, Mm -hmm. even in recovery.
1: Right. Yeah, and so I it began a long journey of leaning into that and yeah. realizing over and over like, oh wait, no, I am powerful. I do have what it takes. And so the moments where I would feel powerless and I'd feel that familiar desire to use porn as the solution for my powerlessness feeling, um, I can go like, okay, well, what do I What do I actually, what are some other options here? Mm-hmm. Um, and begin to like utilize all the various options that are out there besides porn. Yeah. So I would say now like, you know, when did it end? Well, it, it, it doesn't feel like it ended. Um, it yeah. feels like what I some way that I describe what I would call freedom or a lot of people would call freedom from porn is um, it's how I think of David saying, you prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And the way that I think about that as it relates to porn is Horn is still a possibility. Like I have my phone right here. I have access to internet. Like I could at any moment um, reach for that and use that as a solution for whatever I'm feeling. However, I have so many other options. Now I have so many other options that I know are life giving Mm -hmm. um, that, and that's really what it is. I'm like, Oh, my enemy is right in front of me, but I'm like feasting. So I don't have time for it. Like I'm, and the moment that I stop taking care of myself, I, I, you know, I start suppressing or isolating or um stepping into more passivity, being more passive around stuff or just holding pain in me instead of sharing it with somebody, the more I do that, the more, the bigger the enemy grows in front of me and the less tasteful the food seems in front of me. And so then I start engaging with that enemy a lot more. And this one time i showed up at my house after a vacation there's tons of flies in the house i was like what happened I cleaned uh, cleaned everything found the food source killed all the flies um you know somebody could ask like hey does that mean you're never going to have flies in your house again I'm like no as long as i take the trash out i think i'm actually i'll be good but the moment i leave trash and for two weeks at a time on vacation flies are going to show back up that doesn't mean i'm going to be acting out every time it just means the the temptation the desire to go after this to use this as the best solution in the moment is so much more enticing Mm -hmm. when i haven't taken good care of myself when i am isolated when i am living passively or when i'm holding pain and not sharing it
2: yeah because just Mm -hmm. porn is just a a substitute it's right. like it's like having a ton of ju- junk food that gives you really bad indigestion. Yeah. But if you have a feast, I love that analogy. Yes. If you have a feast right there and you, you're eating your fill and you feel good and it makes you healthy <laughs> and strong, I don't really need to go to this other table that gives me indigestion right. every single time. With the enemy totally. right there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. It makes junk food just so much less desirable. You're
1: like, yeah, I I could eat that bag of chips. I know how I feel. Um and honestly, I've put so many other like parameters and boundaries within my life that I can see the potato chips, but they're, you know, it's in the other room and it's actually behind a case. I'm like, ah, so much work
2: to get something that is not going to work that well. So,
0: that's good. I
2: love that. Man, so so good. Guys, get this book. Yes. Get this book because If you could be struggling with pornography, um, but there's most, even if you're not, you can be a mentor and a help to someone who Mm -hmm. is. Yes.
0: And statistics would say that three quarters of the people listening are struggling with pornography to some extent. Mm -hmm. And so this is a book you need to get numb to known by Aaron Zint, the surprising path away from porn. And we will link it in the show notes. So you can go grab that on Amazon, get it in a day or two. And uh, Aaron can you go ahead and explain this idea that porn is not the problem? Summarize that for us in a few sentences.
1: Yeah. Porn is the solution to the problem, is a solution, a damaging, unhelpful solution, but a solution nonetheless, and for a lot of people, the only solution they have to the problems of isolation, passivity, and pain. And addressing those root problems in your life will decrease your desire, need, um, and decrease the desirability of porn as an option, especially as you begin to discover all the various life-giving options that are available to you. So good. So,
2: so good.
0: All right, folks, you heard it. Go grab the book, and we will ask you, Aaron, um, where can people find you on social mm-hmm. media or your other resources?
1: Oh, I'm so bad at social media, but, uh, the, <laughs> we, m- my wife and I have a Zint marriage lab is our Instagram handle. My wife, Jenna Zint is also just a, a blast to follow. So regardless of whether you care about this or not, like follow her <laughs> True and story. not she is a
0: blast. Yeah.
1: Um, but we have a website Zint Um, that's where you can, you know, there's a link to the book there. We offer, uh, emotional health, sexual wholeness, coaching, um, couples coaching, things like that. Um, And my wife does a lot of habit coaching for people, which is phenomenal as well. So zinsquad.com.
0: ZintSquad.com and ZintMarriageLab and, of course, Jenna. And we'll put all of that in the resources. Um, so, folks, you can find the links to those in the show notes or the description if you're on YouTube. We're going to close out this episode the way we close out all of our episodes, and that's by asking you this question. Rewind back to your first couple years of marriage. Mm. What advice do you wish you would have received? And fill in the blank, dear young married couple.
1: Dear young married couple. When you experience pain with each other, individually, whatever, get known as quickly and as often as possible by sharing the things that are in your heart without blaming your spouse, um, but share your experience, get known by them uh, and build a deep life-giving connection through that vulnerability.
2: There you go. love it. So good, Erin, thank you so much for your passion on the subject, for helping men, for, you know, a lot of creative energy goes into this and a lot of, a lot of pain you had to go through to write this book and help Mm -hmm. people. So, well, and talking about
0: vulnerability, I mean, sharing your story with the whole world through a book, (laughs) that's a lot of vulnerability that you've experienced just in the last month since this, did it launch about a month ago?
1: Yeah, about a month ago. Yeah. Yeah. New levels. (laughs) New levels, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. It was a huge honor. Thanks, Aaron.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. All right, friends. We really hope that you got a ton out of today's conversation. And if you want help, if you want personal guidance with individual counseling or couples counseling, or even help with you as a couple reaching the goals you have, just reach out. Give us a call at 916 678 1797 or shoot us an email at hello at dear young married couple.com.
0: no matter where you are in the world or in your marriage we can set up a counseling session with you and we can work toward progress we also post marriage advice regularly on our instagram which is at dear young married couple and we'd love for you to join us in conversation there all right see you next week